If you have your Bibles, turn to 1 Samuel chapter 21. <clears throat> yeah, good morning. My name is Brad Cheney. That was Shelton Woods who was leading the uh, worship. And we're so glad that we get to worship uh, together and study God's Word together. Before I read the passage, let me intro it in this way. In 1995, after the, uh, Margaret Thatcher, the iconic prime minister of Great Britain, after she died, the government, as is often the case, governments will do this, they released quite a bit of archival video footage and audio footage you know, from the, the previous either president, or in this case, prime minister's life that had never been uh, before been seen by the public. There was one video that caught national attention, international attention. I, I don't I guess you can't say in 1995 that something went viral because did anything go viral that early without the internet? But there was one video that truly encapsulated who this woman was and what she stood for. It was an interview that took place about five years after she had left Downing Street. She was being interviewed by a Swedish journalist and TV personality by the name of Stina Dabrowski. Stina Dabrowski was, and she was kind of the Barbara Walters of Sweden. She, she was known for her famous interviews of, you know, world figures and so forth. And at the end of the interview, she turns to Mrs. To Thatcher and says, Miss Thatcher, uh, all the people that I interview, I ask them to do something for me at the end. It's kind of a gimmick on my show. It's to make a jump. Has anybody seen this? It's to make a jump, just to stand up and make a jump in the air. And here is Margaret Thatcher. You know, this is a a stern woman. She's she's wearing her 1980s shouldered power suit and her long skirt. And she's looking back at Dabrowski. And she says, I shouldn't dream of it. (laughs) I think it's a silly thing to ask. I think it's a puerile thing to ask. What ends up making the video kind of on the, the verge of cringeworthy is Dabrowski won't take no for an answer. She keeps pushing Thatcher. She says, well, I've interviewed Hillary Clinton. I've interviewed Mikhail Gorbachev. All of them jumped. It, it's just a little thing. It's, it's, an, it's another side of you. Uh, it shows another side of you. And Thatcher replies, I'll tell you what it shows. It shows that you want to be thought to be normal and popular. (laughs) But to coin a phrase, no, no, no. (laughs) I made great leap forward, but not little jumps in studios. And I do not wish to lose the respect of people whose respect I have kept for years. (laughs) Not surprising if you know anything about Margaret Thatcher, but uh, Margaret Thatcher believed there was a, a dignity of decorum that ought to accompany a, a wor- world leader, the le- a leader of, of a country. She, she expected that from herself, and she would not do anything to jeopardize that respectability. And frankly, I I, for one, admire her for it. If I was in being interviewed, I probably would have given in to the peer pressure of the moment and I would have jumped, but, but not Thatcher. She wouldn't jump. Well, you may, be, you may see where I'm going with this, but in today's passage, we have David acting like a lunatic. 
you know, Thatcher won't jump. And David acts like a, a complete madman. And, and as a reader of the story, I, you almost wish you could go back in time and jump in a time machine and travel back 3,000 years to ask the original readers, the Jewish, the original Jewish audience, the question, how did you feel? What did you think about fabled King David you know, abasing himself like a lunatic in, the front, in, in front of your, your, your greatest enemies, the Philistines? Um, does, does King David lack principles? Um, I mean, here he is with spit running down his beard and Thatcher wouldn't jump. <laughs> and I, I don't really know what the answer to that question would be. I mean, we, some cultures, as you, you may realize, very much, they prize ingenuity and creativity and cunning and thinking on one's feet. Those are traits prized in certain cultures. Uh, and maybe the original readers would have heard it that way. But it, it's certainly behavior not fit for a king. And so why is it in the Bible? What is the purpose of this crazy story uh, in, in God's word? Well, let's see as we read it. <clears throat> Verse 1. David went to Nob to Ahimelech the priest. Ahimelech trembled when he met him and asked, Why are you alone? Why is no one with you? David answered Ahimelech the priest, The king charged me with a certain matter and said to me, No one is to know anything about your mission and your instructions. As for my men, I have told them to meet me at a certain place. Now then, do you ha- what do you have on hand? Give me five loaves of bread or whatever you can find. But the priest answered David, I don't have any ordinary bread on hand. However, there is some consecrated bread here, provided the men have kept themselves from women. David replied, that is, you know, they remain ceremonial, ceremonially clean. And David replied, well, indeed, women have been kept from us as, as usual whenever I set out. The men's things are holy, kadosh, even on missions that are not holy. How much more so today? So the priest gave David the consecrated bread, since there was no bread there except the bread of the presence that had been removed from before the Lord and replaced by hot bread on the day it was taken away. Now one of Saul's servants was there that day, detained before the Lord. And we don't know anything more other than perhaps he is there to, uh, maybe there's some form of penance that he has to pay. There's some, something that, you know, he's detained before the Lord, whatever that means. He was Doeg the Edomite, Saul's head shepherd. Although other translations say um, something along the lines of Saul's, kind of the head of Saul's secret police. And David asked Ahimelech, don't you have a spear or a sword here? I haven't brought my sword or any other weapon because the king's business was urgent. The priest replied, the sword of Goliath, the Philistine, whom you killed in the valley of Elah is here. It is wrapped in a cloth behind the ephod. If you want it, take it, for there is no sword here but that one. And David said, there is none like it. Give it to me. That day, David fled from Saul and went to Achish, king of Gath. But the servants of Achish said to him, Isn't this David, the king of the land? Isn't he the one they sing about in their dances? Saul has slain his thousands and David's his tens of thousands. 
David took these words to heart and was very much afraid of Achish, king of Gath. So he pretended to be insane in their presence. And while he was in their hands, he acted like a madman, making marks on the doors of the gate and letting saliva run down his beard. Achish said to his servants, Look at the man! He's insane! Why did you bring him to me? Am I so short of madmen that you have to bring this fellow here to carry on like this in front of me? Must this man come into my house? And David left Gath and escaped to the cave of Adullam. When his brothers and father's household heard about it, they went down from him to him there. All those who were in distress or in debt or dis- discontented gathered around him, and he became their le- leader. About 400 men were with him. And let's pray. Our Father, your word is sweet like honey from the honeycomb. There is nothing like it. And we are your grateful servants to to read it, to study it. And we ask now for the help of the Holy Spirit that we might understand it and apply it to our hearts. Uh, Do this for our good and for the glory of your name. Through Jesus Christ, our Lord, we ask it. And God's people said, amen. Well, if you were here last week, we were in chapter 24. Now we've gone backwards to chapter 21. Uh, Originally, this week I was planning to preach on chapter 27 or chapter 30, and then I changed my mind. So that's the uh, disordered progression through our sermon series in the life of David. But uh, the overall narrative at this point, it's pretty much the same. David is a fugitive on the run. He is fleeing from the wicked King Saul, the first monarch of Israel, Uh, David has been anointed as the future king, but he's not yet the king. And Saul is afraid that this upstart is going to usurp the throne from him. So David and his men are on a run. They are desperately hungry, and they come to the Jewish village by the name of Nob, where it just so happens the tabernacle is presently located. And within the tabernacle, there are 12 loaves of bread, the so-called bread of the presence. Uh, these are not ordinary loaves of bread, as you might imagine. Uh, they, they are, they are uh, consecrated bread. Um, Old Testament scholars that I've read suggest that each one of these 12 loaves of bread weighed over five pounds apiece. So these are very large loaves of bread. Uh, that would be the equivalent of, of what, how many loaves in our local grocery store? Probably four loaves per loaf in our local grocery store. And there are 12 of them, one for each of the 12 tribes of Israel. And the way the bread of the presence works is that on the Sabbath, every Sabbath, the old bread that is sitting in the north side, is it the western part of the the holy place, is swapped out for new bread. The old loaves are given to the priests who would eat the bread, and they represented God's people being fed by the Lord, the Lord's bread. If you know anything about the ancient world, you know that offering bread to gods was a very common practice. For example, there was a Mesopotamian god by the name of Anu, who was the so-called hungry god, very hungry, especially hungry, because he demanded to be fed 30 loaves of bread every day. And so the priests of this Mesopotamian deity would offer two morning meals to Anu and two evening meals. They would set the bread before him with 
pipes and music and dancing and ceremony. And then the, the idea is that the, the God would, uh, in an imagined way, eat the bread in the presence. Uh, but, that, I mean, that con- it's so common in, in ancient cultures where it's the responsibility of the people to feed the gods. Well, in Israel, the pattern's entirely reversed. You have the tabernacle, and we've talked about this before, but the tabernacle was an architectural depiction of heaven. The tabernacle was a miniature heaven on earth. So there are, there's the bread there. The bread is in heaven, in the presence of God. That's why it's called the bread of the presence. And it comes down to earth or out to earth on every Sabbath day. Bread from heaven given to the people for the people to eat once a week on every Sabbath day. Does that ring a bell at all? Does does that sound like anything we do here at All Saints every Sunday? Yeah. Like there's a sense that 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 right is is being redone, recapitulated in our weekly celebration of the Lord's Supper, the Eucharist. Um, But back to the story. So we have David coming before the priest Ahimelech, and he says, in effect, um, I'm on a super secret mission from King Saul right now, and I've left all my food at home and my weapons at home. Do you have anything for us to eat? So David lies through his teeth. (laughs) And uh, it seems like a fishy story to us. It, It probably seems like a fishy story to Ahimelech as well. And he says, well, we do have only the consecrated bread, the bread of the presence. And this is the bread that only the priests are to eat. But I suppose in desperate situations, it could be eaten by someone else, someone who's in a state of holiness. And David replies, well, don't worry, me and all my men, we are kadosh, we are holy, Uh, we are especially consecrated right now for this super secret military operation. And we're left to wonder, is David lying again? Was he kadosh? Were were he and the men kadosh or or not? And what's so interesting about 1 and 2 Samuel, you, you find this over and over again in the text, the narrator will simply record the events without providing any commentary on the events, without any indication of what he is recording is endorsed by God or not endorsed by God. It's basically a story with no moralizing. And one of the results, what that results in the experience for us as readers is There's a great deal of ambiguity. We are left to wonder, does God approve of this behavior? Does God disapprove of this behavior? What parts of this are right and what parts of this are wrong? um, It's a fascinating feature of the story. It's exceptionally ambiguous. It just so happens, a thousand years later, when Jesus and his disciples are also desperately hungry and are traveling through the grain fields of Galilee, they begin to pick the uh, heads of grain on the Sabbath day. And Jesus, once they're criticized by the Pharisees, quotes this episode approvingly to suggest that the priest did the right thing in feeding David and his men the consecrated bread. But still we're left to wonder, was David right to lie? Or even more, was David right to continue this ruse 
once he saw this unsavory character over there on stage right in the shadows. The, who are we referring to? Doeg the Edomite, um, who is observing everything that takes place between David and, and Ahimelech. And so the plot spoiler, I'll give it to you right now. But in the very next chapter, Doeg the Edomite will go and report to King Saul all that has transpired. King Saul will issue an edict that the priests of Nob and all of their families are to be exterminated. And it is this Doeg the Edomite who comes and massacres the entire Jewish village of Nob, all because of uh, this episode in David's life. So there's a lot of ambiguity in the story. There's also a lot of symbolism. I mean, here we have David, the king-in-waiting, who is being fed the food of the priests. He's in the place of of the priests. And in a later chapter, we'll find David worshiping before God in front of the ark. And it turns out he's dressed in priestly garments. And so what part of the symbolism is that this this David is a special kind of king. He is a king-priest. He is a king priest in whom Ahimelech places the sword of Goliath, you know, an emblem of this king's ability to defend the people of Israel from their enemies. And so there's all this rich symbolism of David, warrior, king, priest, special, remarkable, wonderful. And then ever so abruptly, we get to verse 12. (laughs) And the symbolism just like, crashes down to the ground. Did you feel the abruptness of the transition from, uh, or did I say verse 12? Um, Verse 10. It's so abrupt. All of a sudden, David comes up with this harebrained idea that I'm going to travel to the Philistines and hide there. Not only to the Philistines, he ends up going to, did you catch the name of the city? It turns out that's the city that Goliath was from. He was Goliath of Gath. Like, how could this possibly be a good idea in your mind, David? What What are you thinking? Again, the narrator, all he does is record what happens without any commentary. So we're really just left to guess what what could have possibly been going through David's mind. I mean, presumably, he must have thought that Saul would not follow him into enemy, enemy territory. And that, in fact, does happen. Saul does not follow him there. And presumably, maybe he intended to offer his services to Achish as a fake mercenary, which is a plot David later hatches in chapter 27. But lots of ambiguity in the story. All right, story done. Here's what I find so fascinating about the passage. There are two psalms that come out of this fiasco. It's very rare. Those of you who know the Bible know it's very rare that you get to read a story and then have that story interpreted by the major character of the story. And we have that happen here not only once, but twice. The two psalms that are both connected to this episode in David's life are Psalm 34, which we already covered in our service, and Psalm 56. And so it's kind of like we get a chance to Stina Dabrowski interview David afterwards and ask him the questions. David, 
what was going through your mind? How were you interpreting this chaotic experience in your, in your own life? And so I, I just find it fascinating because we get a rare window into the psychology and faith of a biblical character after just having read their, their story, okay? And so here's what I want to draw to your attention. First from Psalm 56 and then from Psalm 34. Psalm 56. I'll read just a, a little excerpt of it uh, to you. The subscript that is attached to the Psalm 56, the subscript is, uh, you know, who, who wrote it and what type of song it is and what is the tune. The subscript reads, For the director of music to the tune of A Dove on the Distant Oaks. Right there in the selection of the tune. Did David select the tune? Potentially. The, t- the, the name of the song that he has chosen is like, Oh, that I had the wings of a dove that I could fly away from my enemies and like a bird land on a distant oak branch. That's the tune selected. And then we read in 56 verse 3, these words. When I am afraid, I will trust in you. I put my trust in God. In God, whose word I praise, in God I will trust and I will not be afraid. Now, I, I don't know about you, but we taught our, our kids growing up a little song that's related to that verse of Scripture. Did anybody else do the, When I am afraid, I will trust in you. I will trust in... It's a, it's a you know, it almost sounds like a lullaby. But uh, all my kids know it, or you should know it. They're nodding their heads no over there. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, We did teach that to them. I never realized that that came from this episode in David's life. And he goes on. He says, Lord, record my misery. Put my tears in your bottle. Are they not written about in your book? Then my enemies will turn back in the day when I call. This I know that God is for me. In God whose word I praise, in the Lord whose word I praise, in God I trust, I will not be afraid. What can man do to me? I will render thank offerings to you, for you have delivered my soul from death and my feet from falling, that I may walk before God in the light of life. What's so fascinating is if all you had was 1 Samuel chapter 21, you would have never known that that's what was going on inside of him, would you? Absolutely not. You would have never known how afraid he was. I mean, think about it. Think how frightened you and I would be if we were prisoners of, you know, Al-Qaeda in the Middle East. And not only do we know that we're going to die, but but we're going to face a very torturous death. They're going to Make it long and drawn out. And that's, of course, exactly what, was, what David was facing. He was going to be tortured and then dismembered by the Philistines because that's how the Philistines treated their prisoners. And he says, I was so afraid. But, but then he would talk to himself. When I am afraid, I put my trust in you. And God, I will trust and not be afraid. All of that rich, the, the richness of that psalm is going on inside of, inside of him. And then there's Psalm 34. 
And we read about it. We read and recited the psalm earlier in the worship service today. The excerpt that stood out to me was, I sought the Lord and he answered me and he delivered me from all my fears. This poor man cried to the Lord and the Lord heard him and saved him from all his troubles. And then he says, Oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. Blessed is the man who takes refuge in him. Again, you would never have known that those were the thoughts that were running through his head. And you notice, who does David give credit to? Does he, does he give credit to his own ingenuity or his luck or his lucky stars or his lucky rabbit's foot or his acting classes, <laughs> his acting prowess? It, it, it's, all, it's all about God, how God delivered him, how God did it all. And he, and he says, I, in this episode of my life, I tasted and saw that the Lord is good. And then why don't you do the same? Why don't you take the taste test and feast on God and find out if you'll agree? Now, there's a lot more in, in those Psalms. Just look, look with me on the front of your bulletin ever so briefly. We have William Blake's famous portrait of Nebuchadnezzar dating to 1795, but a number of you have seen this one before. I tried my very best to find a portrait of David and his craziness. <laughs> and there was nothing on the internet, nothing in you know, Renaissance art archives that, that did a fair justice to David and his, um, and, his, and his lunacy. So looking at this, and then uh, picturing in your mind... David running through the streets of the Philistine city of Gath, scribbling graffiti on the, the gates of the city with spit running down his beard. Do you get that? You have that picture? That picture looks nothing, sounds nothing like Psalm 34 uh, and Psalm 56. And so it leads me to conclude this. And I know this is not the major point of the passage, but it is such a vivid illustration. Friends, you never know. You never know what's going on inside of another person. You never know. Never know what's going on. Like how God is working on another person. What God may be teaching their heart. Uh, what they are learning what even is motivating them, how they are processing a given event, you, you just never know. <laughs> if ever there was an illustration of that and, and something that we would all agree, right? But if ever there was an illustration of it in the Bible, it is here. You never know what's going on inside of someone else. And it is, it's a rebuke to me. It's a reminder to me that when I presume to think that I really know and I, I'm psychoanalyzing you trying to figure out what's going on, that I, maybe I need to check my presumption at the door because you just never know. You never know it's what God is doing in another human heart. <clears throat> I think for those of you who are part of our community groups, you know, we're, we're ramping up and starting our community groups here in the month of October. And I, if you're doing sermon discussion, I think there are some really interesting conversation topics related to this where you guys can talk about 
these psalms, read these psalms, and then connect it to these episode, this episode in David's life. Um, I, there's a lot to explore there. Um, I think this also, something you may want to talk about too, is simply the power of our personal testimonies. You know, we believe, I hope we believe as Christians, that we have an incalculable privilege of leading other people who do not yet know Jesus into the eternal life of knowing God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. Um, And our invitation to another person is simply for them to taste and see that the Lord is good. And, And even as we recount our own stories, when we have tasted and seen that the Lord is good, That is the invitation to someone else. I mean, isn't that what we do with a restaurant? (laughs) If you had great food at a great restaurant, it's, you know, I tasted this. Come and see for yourself. Um, Yeah, I, I bet some of you have an episode in your life analogous to this life, this episode in David's life, when you, out of your own sheer stupidity and bad decision making, found yourself in a very dangerous situation you found yourself in one of those moments where you're like, I should not be here. I do not know if I'm going to make it out of here alive. And it was your fault. It was your bad decision making. Does that anybody ring, ring a bell? And yet God in his sheer mercy like rescued you out of that moment and delivered you didn't you taste and see that the Lord was good right there? Isn't that a powerful story that you could share with someone else who does not yet know the goodness of the Lord? Or do you see where we're going here? Like uh, the power of our personal testimonies is a marvelous power that we have if we will only take the time to cultivate a relationship with someone else and share it. So those are different ways I think you could, in your community groups, discuss this. Uh, Speaking of personal stories, Shelton gave me a book a few years ago, a New York Times bestseller written by David Carr, entitled The Night of the Gun. Um, Pastoral warning, lots of bad language in the book. Not the right book for everyone. Not a full pastoral endorsement of the book, although... It's a riveting page-turner of a book. And uh, so David Carr was a journalist who developed a a terrible drug habit. I mean, he became a druggie. And his life just, you know, falls to pieces. And then after he makes it out of rehab, in true journalist fashion, he decides, you know what, I want to write a book about this by going back to my hometown, to Minneapolis, and interviewing all the people who were there for all of these episodes that I was so high or drunk or blacked out on. I don't even remember these episodes. The episode, The Night of the Gun, I don't even remember that. But I'm going to go back and I'm going to interview all these friends and lovers and family members who witnessed both my downfall and my rebirth. And so as one reviewer comments, it's a compelling tale of drug abuse, despair, and finally hope. And I think it is that. But at one point in the story, Carr is reflecting on uh, how we disclose ourselves to other people. Like what pieces of us do we make known to those around us? And he writes, he writes this. 
If I said that I was a fat thug who beat up women and sold bad cocaine, would you like my story? No. What if instead I wrote, I was a recovered addict who obtained custody of my twin girls, got us, got us off of welfare, and raised them by myself, even though I had a little touch of cancer. Now that's, now we're talking. Now that's a good one. Well, both, both are equally true. Both are my story. But I'm inclined to mention my tender-hearted attentions to my children as a single parent before I get around to the fact that I hit their mother when we were together. And we're very selective in what parts of us the, that we disclose. That's just kind of the nature of, of our interpersonal um, you know, communications. Well, in a certain sense, David didn't have that luxury <laughs> because the narrator tells all. The narrator tells all. We, we alluded to this at the beginning of the sermon series. Other than Jesus Christ and what we know about him in the Gospels, there is no other person in all of Scripture we know more about than King David. In fact, there is no one in all of antiquity who has been written about in greater detail than in King David. He's the most extensively narrated single story in the entire Bible, which means, among other things, that all of this man's dirty laundry gets exposed for everyone who reads to see. And we have these episodes in his life where sometimes he's the king, priest, warrior, savior, and other times he's the big fat thug. <laughs> Why is it that the narrator tells all? When we get to chapter 21, verse 7, it's really interesting when you read along. Um, 21.7, these are the words that the narrator records. But David thought to himself, one of these days I will be destroyed by the hand of King Saul. The best thing I can do is escape to the land of the Philistines. <laughs> he does it again. You see how far removed Psalm 34 and Psalm 56 are from him? Just... Six chapters later, you know, why does the narrator record all? All of David, all of the failures, the trials, the sufferings, the successes. Is it just not to encourage us? We who are in, in certain respects so much like him, these, this mixture of trust and two chapters later of faithlessness and hypocrisy. And um, we who have our, our good days, you know, scholars estimate that between when David went off into the wilderness on the run from King Saul and when he came to the throne, do you know how long of a duration that was? It was 10 years. He was 10 years in the wilderness. Uh, like relentless pressures of the wilderness can erode even the strongest faith. And it did. It did his. And I don't know. I'm for one thankful that there is at least one fully humane portrait in the Bible of someone who goes from absolute confidence in God to a guy who just cracks into shambles. I know that that's the kind of guy I can relate to. That's the kind of guy we, we all can relate to. So all of David is narrated 
all for our encouragement. You have to wonder if one day, you know, there will be a Heroes of the Faith seminar panel up in heaven where David is there. They're, they're all up on the stage and they're taking questions from the audience and someone poses, one of us raises our hands and we say, hey David, how did you feel about being the most exposed human being in the history of the world? <laughs> do you regret all those stories told about you? And what do you think he'll say? He'll say, no, because all those stories demonstrated God's grace, didn't it? God's grace for a lunatic. (laughs) And so here's the take home. David's life exposed means in such a fantastic way, God's grace is exposed. All of David's life exposed manifests all the grace of God in David's life. Amen? Let me leave you with this final image. We started out by saying Margaret Thatcher wouldn't jump. (laughs) David, he definitely would jump. (laughs) He looks like a fool. Some of you may know this. Speaking of graffiti, it's probably the first sermon I've ever preached where that word has been used four times in the sermon. But uh, one of the most famous pieces of graffiti was unearthed by archaeologists in the year 1857. A team of archaeologists were excavating a room near Palatine Hill, which is the centermost of the seven hills of Rome. We have two members of our church who are headed to Rome today. So you're, you're going to probably visit Palatine Hill. Uh, and the graffiti is, is Christian. Well, it's sort of Christian graffiti. It was the earliest surviving depiction of Jesus Christ. And it dates to the late second, early third century. Um, and, and many of you are familiar with this. It's the primitive drawing of a boy standing in an an attitude of worship in front of a man who is being crucified. But instead of having a human head on this man, it has the head of a donkey. The crucified man has the head of a donkey. This inscription that's written underneath it in Latin letters is, Alexamenos worships his God. It's crudely drawn. It's probably drawn by some Roman youth who are making fun of their Christian friend. Uh, And we can imagine, yes, some boys, Roman boys, are mocking their Christian friend. Because how does it seem? Like, what sort of God gets crucified? It's such a crazy idea. Like, only a jackass God would be crucified. And, and who would be crazy enough to worship a God who would be crucified? Like, only a dumb donkey. If the Romans got it, the gospel that we celebrate is a, it's a lunatic story. It is a crazy story that Jesus would leave the courts of heaven to come into this wilderness land. That shortly after the birth of the king of the universe, he would have to flee to Egypt. To, to the wilderness as a fugitive, that he would be rejected by his, his own family, that he would be forced out of his own hometown, and that he would be crucified outside the holy city of Jerusalem on Jerusalem, pardon me, on a criminal's gallows, and etched above his head would be its own piece of graffiti, a sign that mocked him as Jesus the Nazarene, the king of the Jews. There are two kinds of people in the world today. Those 
for whom the cross is foolishness and those for whom the foolishness of, of the cross is the power of God and the wisdom of God and the salvation of God. The startling demonstration of a God who like, doesn't have a certain level of dignity and decorum that he has to maintain, that, he, that he's willing to be portrayed in the eyes of the world as a jackass. Because that's what the cross it was and is. So if you're not a believer yet, uh, maybe you're here today and you're just exploring the Christian faith, you know, explore further. There is, there is something radical and wonderful about this. And we would put the invitation to you, why don't you come and join us? I come and join us. Um, my favorite, uh, I'm not a big CCM fan, Christian, contemporary Christian music, but one of my favorite CCM songs is, it is my favorite. It's written by Michael Card, and it's entitled God's Own Fool. It was in the 80s or 90s. Anybody? God's Own Fool? I'll leave you with this, and it is, I'll close with it. It's my invitation. Should I sing it? <laughs> All right, I'll sing it. Although my voice feels raspy. It seems I've imagined him all of my life as the wisest of all mankind. But if God's holy wisdom is foolish to men, he must have seemed out of his mind. For even his family said he was mad. And the priest said a demon's to blame. But God in the form of this angry young man could not have seemed perfectly sane. When we in our foolishness thought we were wise, he played the fool and he opened our eyes. When we in our weakness believed we were strong, He became helpless to show we were wrong. And so we follow God's own fool, for only the foolish can tell. Believe the unbelievable and come be a fool as well. Amen.